If you're able to, would you stand with me as I read from Acts chapter 4? It's on page 24 in our sermon books, and it's also on page 1084 in the Black Bible in front of you. Mine has the heading, The Believers Pray for Boldness. Acts 4, verses 23 to 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and rejoiced, I'm sorry, reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Hey, good morning, everyone. Before we jump into today's teaching, let's just recap where we are and remind ourselves, since we took a, a little bit of a break last week for our one worship service, which if you were here, that was, wasn't that an incredible service? Uh, yes, thank you. 13 baptisms and celebrating new life in Jesus, which is all what Acts is about. Anyway, where are we in our study so far? Well, in the last couple of weeks, we've been working our way from chapter 3 on, and at the beginning of chapter 3, we saw the leaders of the early church, Peter and John, perform a miracle, a healing, healing a beggar who had been lame since birth, and it's a healing that, that testified to the legitimacy of their message, that salvation is found only in Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one the Jewish people have been waiting for. So there's this healing and then an explanation, you know, by whose power, whose name did you do this? And, they, and Peter and John give an explanation for what happened, and then they're arrested, they get the chance to defend themselves before the Jewish leaders, who let them go, but not until after they have threatened them and said, stop telling people that Jesus is the Messiah. Do all the healings you want, but don't claim to be doing them in Jesus' name. And that brings us to today where they rejoin the other leaders and report back on what happened in Acts chapter 4. Now, back in high school, I worked in a daycare center for a couple of years, and one of my jobs at the end of the day, when you know, we were, half the kids were gone, the rest of them would all go to the central room, and my job was to go around and sweep and mop and wipe down the tables and wipe down the chairs and do all of the cleanup that the older ladies who ran uh, the daycare center didn't want to do themselves. They made the high, schooler, the high school kid do it. 
So that's my job, going around these rooms. And of course, it's easier to do a job like that if you've got the radio on. So in every room, I would go in, I would turn on the radio and tune it to the local Christian music station, like a Caleb or something like that. It was long before AirPods or, I mean, I could have brought a Walkman with me, I suppose, but... Um, I didn't have one. So I would change the radio station in every one of these rooms, and by the end of the day, you know, the, the whole facility would be playing whatever is, you know, um, safe for the whole family. It would all be playing on the radios in the center, at least until one day when one of the moms came in to pick up her daughter and heard what was being played in the room that she was in and objected. She's not religious, doesn't want her kids to be brought up religious, and she's like, I'm kind of paying money for you to watch my kid. I'd rather you didn't play this kind of stuff for them. So the director came and talked to me and said, hey, we can't have that here. Uh, I'm going to need you to stop. So I listened to what she said, and I didn't stop. Because I was part of a youth group that said, you're going to be persecuted for being a Christian And when you're persecuted for being a Christian, you need to stand up for what you know is right. Take a stand for Jesus by forcing children to listen to bad Christian music. (laughs) You know, uh, looking back on that, um, I realize now being told to stop playing a certain kind of music around children is not what Peter and John would have recognized as persecution, right? Can you imagine? I'm really suffering. And they're like, you're suffering? Not what they would have thought of as persecution. I think my motivation was good. Stand up for the truth. You know, be a public witness or testimony or something like that. But I do wish my youth pastor had told me there's a difference between being persecuted for being a Christian and being told to knock it off because you're a jerk. But then again, I'm not so sure we can tell the difference anymore in the way we interact with the world around us now. See, in our reading of Acts so far, we're at this moment in the history of the Jesus movement where they are starting to experience opposition. We're not yet to the point of outright persecution yet, but we're on a trajectory that is headed in that direction. So the way that these early church leaders respond to this opposition sets the tone for how the whole Jesus movement thinks about itself, thinks about the way it should interact with the world, the way it should interface with people who object or oppose the calling of the church to preach Jesus, which means that this this response, their response in this prayer has a lot to teach us. This is how followers of Jesus should respond. This is the first model we get for how the church should respond to opposition against what Jesus is continuing to do in the world through the church. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 23 through 31. It's on, did I say page, or chapter 4? Did I say chapter 4? It's on page 24. I just confused myself. You guys were all fine, and I confused myself. Acts 4 on page 24 Verses 23 through 31. I'm going to set the stage for us, and then we're going to jump into the prayer. And as we do, we're going to read how these guys don't ask God to change anything except themselves. They don't ask God to change anything except themselves. Put it another way, they're not asking God to change their circumstances. 
They're asking God to give them courage to face their circumstances. We've got a calling and we need courage for the calling. They're not saying, God, hey, could you just make this easier? They're saying, God, could you make me stronger? All right, let's jump in. The story picks up in verse 23. Keep in mind, as Luke is unfolding the story of the early church for us, the stories he chooses, the order in which he tells them is important. We already know there's lots of miracles and signs and wonders that are happening multiple times. We're told the apostles are performing miracles and signs, they're performing signs and wonders. There's lots of them happening, but Luke tells us about this one and includes this one because this is the one that kicks off opposition against the Jesus movement from the outside. Now, we'll pivot here in a chapter or two to opposition from inside the Jesus movement, and then back to opposition again from the outside, but it's this healing of the lame beggar at the beginning of chapter three that kind of starts us down this trajectory. Ultimately, we'll culminate in stoning, persecution, scattering of the church. So verse 23, when they're released, they go back to their friends. This is not the whole church or the whole gathering of the thousands upon thousands that have come to belief in Jesus as the promised Messiah, but it's probably a smaller group of, of leaders or others in the church, and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, everything that happened in the whole back and forth at the beginning or the, everything in chapter four before this. And when they had heard it, That is, when this group that had gathered together had heard the report, they lifted their voices together to God, Luke tells us, and said, and I want us to stop for a minute, because what's about to come is kind of convicting, or at least for me, because I think if this had been written about a a meeting that I was leading, it probably would have said something like, you know, and when they heard the report, They all lifted their voices together and had a really productive strategy session for how they were going to make the message about Jesus more understandable to the people they were preaching to. Maybe if we stop emphasizing that whole, you guys are the ones who killed him thing. In other words, I think it's pretty significant that the very first time the church faces opposition, pushback, they don't start a letter writing campaign. Uh, or call their representatives, or strategize about making the message more palatable. Uh, They don't consider, hey, I wonder if there's a place that's more receptive to our ministry. Let's go there. Um, They don't appeal the verdict in their case. They pray. The first time they face opposition, they stop and they pray. And it comes in a, the prayer comes in two parts, essentially. Uh, Praise resting in an attribute of God that is vital to the situation they're facing, and then petition, some ask. They ask God because of who he is to intervene on their behalf. Now, let's walk through these two parts. We pick up the actual content of the prayer beginning in verse 24. When they had heard the report, heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, And that intro, by the way, that description of who God is, is a a direct quote from Psalm 146, verse 6. Blessed is he whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. It it would be as if, you know, one of us would start a prayer by beginning, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, right? You're praying in the words that the songs that you've sung in church have have taught you. Uh, And their prayer starts... 
with this attribute of God that is fundamental to what they need to face their situation. Sovereign Lord, the one who made everything. Did they need to remind themselves of God's sovereignty? That sovereignty, by the way, is just one of those big church words that means complete power or total authority. I mean, the ability to do everything you choose to do. If you're completely sovereign, you're able to do anything and everything. See, these guys have bumped up against rulers and authorities over them, human authorities who have said, hey, stop preaching the name of Jesus, the authority of Jesus as the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. We're still waiting for the Messiah. So stop preaching Jesus, and when they come up against their authority, they appeal to a higher authority. God, you're the one who, who made everything. You have all power, all authority. You, can, you choose what happens, and you can do what you choose. And given that, then they, they, as they're praying, they begin to develop that thought using the words of Psalm 2, a, another psalm, another song that goes in the back of their minds almost nonstop about God and about how the world interacts with God and with his anointed, with his Messiah. That's what Messiah means. It means anointed one. See, they quote from Psalm 2, which is a psalm that the early church realized pretty quickly has got to be talking about Jesus. Uh, it's got to be talking about the Messiah. Uh, it may have been talking initially about a human ruler, but it comes to this point of, uh, of being read, to understood to, to be talking about the Messiah. It says, why do Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? So the kings of the earth have set themselves. That means like they've, they're holding their station against, uh, you know, being prepared for an attack. They've set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And as they're, they're praying this and, and reading this, they're, they're realizing, you know, opposition is pretty typical if you're the Lord's anointed. Those who oppose the Lord oppose his anointed one, his Messiah. And those who are with the Messiah, those who are servants of the anointed one, are also going to face opposition. In other words, and, and Jesus himself told them, them this, like, if you're with Jesus, what's true about Jesus is going to be true about you. If Jesus faced opposition, you're going to face opposition. It's just inevitable. But, and this is the key, they recognize that, that God isn't surprised by any of this. He's the sovereign Lord who made everything. And the verses that follow the quote from Psalm 2, they, they recap the story of the opposition to Jesus, but cast it in a bit of a different light. These people who opposed Jesus, uh, Pontius Pilate and Herod, uh, Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, they were all doing what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. They thought that they were opposing God, but in opposing God, they were doing exactly what God had planned would happen, that his son would be crucified and resurrected. See, nothing happened by accident. Nothing happened that made God go, oh, I didn't see that coming. Uh, let's shift the plan. Everything was predestined. Everything went according to plan. So they're reading this, understanding and thinking, well, if God is completely in control and that his plan was that his son be crucified and resurrected, he'd be opposed, and the life of the church is going to look like the life of Jesus, then I guess we as the church should expect opposition, suffering, 
persecution. And God is in control of all of it. See, the whole first section of the prayer is all about recognizing that God is the one who is in control of everything, and no one, nothing can stop him. Even the, the quote of Psalm 2 comes across that way, when it says, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain. This isn't a resigned and defeated and anguished lament of why do they keep doing this to us? It's more of an incredulity and an expression of futility. Why do they even bother? God is the sovereign one, and no one can stand up against him. So if God is, as they're praying, ultimately, absolutely, totally, completely in control and can do anything he chooses to do, and you are facing opposition from the outside, what are you going to pray for God to do? What would you or I naturally pray for God to do? Probably look something like this, right? Would we, if you and I were praying this, would we ask God to change our circumstances, make it easier? Or would we ask God to give us courage, make us stronger? Well, let's, let's look at what they ask. Because we're moving from the first part of the prayer to the second part, from resting in God's sovereignty to appealing to God now as the sovereign one to intervene. They're moving here into asking God to do something. And if you're familiar with Psalm 2, like the, the entirety of the psalm, uh, God is absolutely in control and in charge of everything. If you're familiar with Psalm 2, you might expect them to kind of pray the words sort of in line with the rest of the psalm, which isn't too gentle. Psalm 2, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. It goes on to say, he will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a piece of pottery, just thrown on the floor. Kiss the sun, lest you be destroyed. So how would you or I pray Psalm 2 in this kind of situation? I think I would probably pray something like, Lord, you're looking on these people who are opposing you, and I know you're just laughing. How could they be so stupid? So God, do what you've promised to do. Shout in anger at them. Terrify them with your wrath. Force them to relent so that we can do what you've called us to do and preach Jesus, the Messiah, and the Lord of the world. <laughs> We'd be saying, come on, God, laugh in their faces. Break them with an iron bar if you have to. Wipe them out, shatter them, scatter them like uh, pieces of pottery. And it'd be a real fun prayer to pray, right? But it's not what they pray. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And look upon has this idea of like, God, if you, if you would see what they're saying to us, you would respond. I mean, you'd be concerned and you would respond. You would intervene. Look upon their threats. Look at what they're threatening us with. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. 
Man, if I had been there, I would have been praying, God, save us from opposition, rescue us from persecution, prevent us from being martyred for this faith, keep us, you know, protect us, sustain us from suffering. But they don't pray to be spared from any of that, opposition, suffering, or persecution, or martyrdom. They're not praying and asking for new rulers or, or praying that the, the right high priest is going to be appointed during the next round. Give us leaders who will be open to our calling. They're not asking for anything, a single thing that is external to themselves. They don't ask for a single thing to to happen or be done that is outside of themselves. Instead, they ask for boldness. They ask for courage. They ask for the kind of courage that Peter and John had just shown as they were standing before the religious authorities and being asked, okay, by what power, whose name, whose authority do you have for doing a miracle like this? And they're like, Jesus, the one you crucified, who's the Messiah? God raised him from the dead. And they're so courageous that these guys are looking back at Peter and John and going, they must have been with Jesus because they are acting just like him. Not backing down at all. They know that they are going to face more opposition because they're calling, the calling of the church is to preach and teach that the kingdom of God is here now because the Jesus who was crucified has been raised. This proves that he's Lord of the whole world and the Messiah Israel has been waiting for. So they don't ask, God, could you make this calling easier? They ask, God, could you give us the courage to fulfill our calling? They don't pray, Lord, change our circumstances. It's real tough out there. Don't you know how how many people are arrayed against us? None of that. They just say, God, this is what we're facing. Can you help us meet it? So they pray, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, to continue to speak your word, the message about who Jesus is and what he has done with all the boldness that you can give us. While we're doing that, they pray, God, you stretch out your hand to heal and perform more signs and more wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. See, boldness is absolutely necessary because if God is going to continue the work continuing to work through them to do these miraculous healings and signs and wonders, which he does. In chapter 5, it tells us the apostles continued to perform signs and wonders. If God's going to continue to work through them like this, like that kind of thing is visible. And they're going to have to answer the question again, by whose power or authority are you doing this? I mean, every time God chooses to authenticate the message through them in some miraculous way, they are going to face pushback and opposition again and again and again, just like Jesus they're going to face some pushback every time somebody comes to new life in Jesus' name. So they don't pray, God, could you make this a little easier? They pray, God, if this is what you've called us to do, can you make us a little stronger and empower us with your spirit? Now, how would you or or I uh, respond in this kind of a situation? What would we tend to, to pray for? Because in some ways, we we live in a similar situation. We're living in a rapidly changing world. I know because of my profession, I'm actually somewhat removed from a lot of the pressures that you all face. I've talked to plenty of you who are worried about, hey, if I say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, I mean, I could get fired or lose my job because of, well, basically because I 
believe in Jesus and then there's a, that he's the Lord of everything and that there's a lot of kind of beliefs that come out of that, that I, I don't want to have to get up and say, I, I don't believe in what I do believe or do believe in what I don't believe or whatever it is. We, we live in a world that's, I think, increasingly going to call on us to display a bit of courage like Peter and John. So this passage, the way they respond to this first case of opposition uh, to the message of Jesus through the early church is pretty instructive for us. I I think there's a good encouragement for us here and also uh, a bit of warning, a a bit of a warning. We have to make sure that we don't confuse that pressure to conform to cultural expectations. Don't confuse that pressure with direct opposition to Jesus. Being told that you have to accept the new normal about politics or sexual identity or morality is not the same thing as being told you can't tell people that they can have new life in Jesus' name. There is a difference. And of course, we should be involved in advocating for the things that we think will will create as much human flourishing as, as we can, living in light of who God is and what he said. But opposition to the beliefs that we hold because we know that God is the creator of everything and Jesus is the Lord of all uh, is is not the same thing as a ban on preaching that Jesus is the only way to eternal life and true human flourishing. See, the the early church leaders didn't think of their mission as a, a call to force uh, the, the, the society around them or the broader society to, to conform to their way of living, their way of living with Jesus as the Lord of all. But their calling was to live out their new life in Jesus in this subversively compelling and attractive way. So there's a bit of a warning here for us. We need to not confuse kind of pressure to perform in a certain way with a ban on talking about Jesus. But there's also encouragement for us here. Because of what they thought their mission was, which is the same as our mission, to preach Jesus as the Lord of all, the crucified and resurrected one, because of what they thought their their mission was, their prayer wasn't about changing society or bringing about better circumstances more conducive to their message. Their prayer was about themselves. God, we're not asking you to change the world. Just change us. We're not asking you to make it easier. We're asking you to make us stronger. God, we're not asking you to change our circumstances or fix the world we live in. We're asking you to to give us courage for the calling to the world that we live in. So I think the biggest question for us coming out of this is like, is this the way I pray? Are we mostly praying for a change in circumstances? or for courage that fits the calling. Because we recognize that God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. He has the power to do anything we ask. But if you're like me, it's pretty easy to give into the temptation to ask God to change other people or situations rather than to give me some courage or boldness in the face of those situations. 
from this, this story of the first opposition, the brand new Jesus movement, we see the leaders solidly placing themselves, resting themselves on, on the sovereignty of God. He is ultimately and completely in charge, and they know their calling to preach Jesus. And so they pray knowing that God will give his followers everything they ask for in order to fulfill that calling, as long as what they ask for is courage, is boldness to meet the task that God has called them to. And according to the story, God likes this kind of prayer. Verse 31 tells us, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Just kind of a common way of saying, after their amen, God gave his own amen. And shook the room they were in, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Not again as in like at Pentecost, but they were empowered with courage with boldness for the calling they have. It says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God, the message of Jesus with boldness. See, there's a difference between being a witness for Jesus and being a jerk in Jesus's name. And ultimately, I know I didn't lose my job for playing the radio station, but ultimately at some point it occurred to me that, you know, the courageous thing to do here is to get to know this family, become friends, share life, and eventually say, hey, I love your daughter because Jesus loves me. I love and care for your kids because of what Jesus has done for me. It actually doesn't take much guts to let a radio do the preaching for you. But it takes a lot of empowering of the Spirit to actually live the calling and the message that we've been given out in front of others. I wish I'd learned that earlier. It might have saved me from quite a few years of having a martyr complex. Man, I'm constantly being persecuted for my faith. Or you're a jerk. Hard to tell sometimes. And I could have spent that time asking God to change me instead of asking him to make things easier on me by changing the world around me. See, we don't need to pray for the world to be easier for us to live in. We need to pray for ourselves to be bolder for the world that we live in. Because they're the ones who need to hear the message and the calling that God's given to us. So, let's pray. Father, you have called us to a task that we cannot accomplish on our own, that we can't even begin to succeed in without the empowerment, without the, the empowerment of your spirit giving us the courage and the boldness. So as we, each of us here, think of the neighbors around us, the people in our family, the, the coworker across uh, the door or the aisle of the cubicle, as we think of the people we interact with on a daily basis, we know that you are calling us with the message of Jesus to them. And so we don't ask that they would suddenly show some supernatural interest in who you are, but that we would recognize the opportunities you've given us to be bold and that your spirit would empower us with boldness to speak and live the message of Jesus. We pray this in his name.